Uh, Every week, if you're new here, we dive into a passage of Scripture uh, with the goal being to learn more about Jesus and to know how we can follow Jesus as we navigate this world. So uh, today we are in the book of Isaiah again. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew around you. Today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 49. And uh, if you're looking for it in the Pew Bible, it's page 609. So before we dive in and read the passage, um, we are in our second week of a series. We're only doing four weeks in Isaiah, which obviously does not do the book of Isaiah justice. But what we're looking at is four of what's called the servant songs of Isaiah. And these are beautiful and just precisely crafted songs that speak of a future servant of the Lord. And we know, because we're on this side of Jesus, that Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. But Isaiah didn't know that. He was just prophesying. And this was 700 years before Jesus came. And so these are just beautiful prophecies of the person of Jesus. And this week, What we're looking at is uh, the citizens that make up the kingdom that Jesus has brought and will bring. And so let's take a look. Uh, Go ahead and stand up and we'll read Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 13. Go ahead and just follow along as I read it. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. And in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages, 
saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Let's pray. Father, I am not capable of speaking the glories of your gospel. And so I pray that your word would speak for itself this morning and that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit and through your word, enliven us to your wonders this morning through your word that we might know you more deeply and approach you more confidently uh, because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So I count myself as a proponent of democracy. You know, I... I think democracy is pretty cool, especially in this fallen world where it's good for those who have power to have a check on that power. I think that's, that's a pretty good thing. You know, it's, it's good for those with authority to have a counterbalance to their authority. Why? Because people are selfish. And if given power... Usually what they'll do, or what I will do, is watch out for myself. And then I'll watch out for those I care about, and then everyone else last. And last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 42, which basically delineates the servant's kingdom. The servant of the Lord that we read about this morning He will establish a new society, a society that's coming at the end of this age, that will be ruled with perfect justice, we looked at, and it will be ruled by one person, Jesus Christ. Now, that kingdom, the one we learned about last week, that that is not a democracy, It's a kingdom with one king who calls all the shots. So this week, you know, we're pondering the citizens of that kingdom. So if if there's one king over all people, then what will the people who are in that kingdom be like? Who are they? And how will they fare? You know... These days, and and for all human history, the deep desire that we have is to be seen and heard. You know, we 
We want our needs to be noticed and provided for by those over us, and rightfully so. And so, you know, you could ask the reasonable question here, who will this king favor? You know, who will he privilege? Who will get his ear? The big critique of today's structures, today's institutions, today's governments, is that it's those with the largest pockets. You know, and therefore the biggest lobbying presence that is heard, that is seen, that is provided for, that receive the most attention. But in the kingdom of Jesus, who's going to catch his eye? Who is he going to notice? Who gets his ear? You know, if, if he's only one guy with all the power, won't he just abuse it like all the other dictators have in history and do today? Won't the old adage, absolute power corrupts absolutely, apply to him too? I hope that today's passage illustrates to us in a new way that the kingdom of Jesus is better news even than American democracy. American democracy is a gospel, and it has gone out, and it is going out to the ends of the earth continually. It's preached every global summit. America has a military base in 80 countries, 750 military bases across the planet. But, it's the, but I'm wondering, is the gospel of Jesus better news? Is it better news for more people? Let's find out, especially as we discover the identity of those who make up the citizenship of this kingdom. Verses 1 through 3 give us the first snapshot, which is a little bit counterintuitive. It talks about the exclusivity of the kingdom of Jesus. Take a look. Verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. And give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. And in his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so notice at first the universal nature of this proclamation. Verse 1, listen to me, O coastlands. This is all people. Coastlands refers to the ends of the earth in the ancient world. This is to the end of the world. That's what coastlands represents. And it's emphasized again. Give attention, you peoples from afar. 
from who knows, from the middle of nowhere, never been there, you listen. This announcement is to be proclaimed to all humanity across time and space. And what is it? It's a universal announcement of a highly exclusive reality. The narrator, who we find out, is himself, this servant. He calls all human beings to focus on him. You know, at first glance, doesn't this seem bold and selfish? Attention, all peoples of the earth. Look at me. Look at me. That's what he's saying. But quickly we learn, just as we did last week, that this servant, he doesn't clamor for power. He isn't even looking for it. What does it say? He's been given it. It says he has been called, named, made, hidden, chosen. By whom? It says Yahweh. That's the name of God. Yahweh God called this servant to glorify him. And so, you know, you wouldn't think that a sermon that's, that's talking about the vastness of who God has a heart for would start with a major point on the exclusivity of the nature of the gospel. But that's exactly what we're given here in this passage. Before we can move on to discuss the fact that Jesus' kingdom is the most inclusive community you could ever imagine... First, we need to swallow the pill that Jesus is the only way into that community. And we'll we'll be given more palatable reasons for that as we go. But the first and foremost and most obvious reason is this. God picked him. The creator of the world picked him. And we'll, dis- we'll soon discover that God made the right decision. But for now, this is all we're told. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he affirms this. He, what does he say? He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, not one person who has ever lived or ever will live can come to the Father, namely God but through me, he says. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if God is is truly the creator and sustainer of life on earth, if he created the beauty that we see today, that we will enjoy today, or the beauty that's within us, the trillions of cells that make up our bodies, our miraculous bodies, then I guess maybe We can trust that he knows the best person for the job. We're given limited hints here in this song. You know, we're going to get to the fourth and final song in Isaiah 53. It's going to lay out exactly what Jesus would come to do. 
But here we're given only limited hints as to exactly what this servant would be accomplishing. But in verse 2, we see some of the reason for that. We see that this plan was hidden. Twice it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, but in the shadow of his hand he hid me. And then he said, He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. That's interesting. That God had this plan foreknown for centuries that all of his plan would be made manifest and be accomplished through Jesus Christ. But this plan was hidden. If any of you have read uh, The Hobbit or seen the really good 1973 cartoon or the not-so-great 20-whatever I don't know what year those, those junk movies came out. Not that I have any opinions about them. But the hobbit. Here's this, this little hobbit that goes with 13 dwarves with the leadership of Gandalf the wizard to reclaim their mountain, the lonely mountain. But it's guarded by a dragon. His name's Smog, and he's the worst. But the hobbit goes in to the lair of the dragon and through his, his smarts, as well as he has a magic ring that turns him invisible, he ascertains that this dragon has an underbelly that has a tiny little tender but vulnerable area. Otherwise, it's, it's shields upon shields. There's no penetrating his armor as the dragon so likes to brag about. But this little hobbit then shares that news with the military leader of the, the town on the lake, right next to the mountain. And the leader's name is Bard, the bowman. And he has a secret and hidden arrow called the black arrow. He only pulls out this arrow in times of desperate need. But when he discovers that there's one little vulnerable spot, on this otherwise impenetrable dragon smog, he takes aim. And his black arrow sails and goes right through the underbelly of this dragon, and he falls to his death. It's a great story. So this, this plan of God for Jesus Christ to be the salvation that God wanted and has desired for all of human history to accomplish. He was going to do it, but it was hidden. And in the New Testament, we see basically the, the unfolding and the declaration of that plan previously hidden, now made known. You know what that's called? It's called the gospel. The, the making known of what was previously hidden. And Paul says it like this. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, which is another word for nations 
to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was God's special arrow in his quiver, waiting until the opportune moment to be strung and shot at the dragon of sin and death, hitting both enemies in precisely the right place and accomplishing all. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's what he was talking about. And in verse 3, we see the result. God said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Another way to translate that is, in whom I will display my beauty. God displays his glory through what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and in the kingdom Jesus is building. That is how God receives glory. And side note, how do we know this is Jesus? We talked about this a little bit last week. But here, it's a little bit contradicted. In verse 3, it, just, it says, You are my servant Israel. Oops. Maybe I should crumple this up. <laughs> Leading you guys astray. No. How do we know it's Jesus? Take a look quickly at verse 6. It says, is it, too, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay, so part of the task of this servant Israel is to what? To bring back Israel. How could Israel bring back Israel? Is this Israel then? Yes, it is. But it's not the failed servant Israel that Isaiah covers in chapters 1 through 48. This is the ideal servant Israel. What Jesus does in his assigned task is to take on the function and the office of what Israel was always supposed to be, which is a sign and a display of the blessings of God. But Israel did not do that. And so Jesus steps in as the ideal servant Israel to accomplish it. And so he's the ideal Israel, perfectly displaying the glory of God. And Jesus, you know, he said pretty much this exact thing. He said to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's, that's a bold statement. If, if I say to you, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Shoot me. Like, don't, uh, don't accept that. <laughs> but that's what Jesus says. I display the glory of God. Look at me. Jesus perfectly displays the love and the power and the beauty of God. Therefore, God made the right choice. Jesus is the way. Now, the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus and Christianity, you know, 
that rules out the modern idea of all religions leading to the same place. You know, that's a pretty common refrain I hear from, from those who are not religious, you know. All religions are the same, you know. They're all equally viable. They're all just helping us be good people. But rather than that being an inclusive statement, what it really is, is it's an extraordinarily arrogant position to take. Why? Because all the adherents of those religions would disagree. (laughs) And so what you're saying is, I'm over all religions, and I declare what all religions are for. And so rather than that being an inclusive statement, it's really just another, another absolute claim. It's, it's another option. I'll, I'll at least give us that. That is an option to believe, that all religions are the same. But you cannot prove it to be true. And nor would the billions of people who adhere to not just Christianity, but any other religion, they would not agree. And so, you, can't, you just can't get away from exclusive claims. You can't. And you definitely can't get away from the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. But if he's right to make such claims, he then opens up the most inclusive community that's ever existed. It's awesome. Verses 4 through 6 display the inclusivity of the kingdom of Jesus. Starting in verse 4, it says, and this is Jesus, this is the servant talking. I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Notice all of this is him preaching to himself. It's him reminding himself of who he is and what he's called to do. But then verse 6, he says, this is now God the Father speaking. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You can't get any more broad than that. So, but first, we've we got to look at verses 4 and 5, because this is interesting. You know, this is the servant wrestling. You know, we, we know Jesus was God. But do we also remember that Jesus was human? And here we get a little glimpse of his humanity. Look, in verse 4 he says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. This is Jesus talking. He brings a lament to God. He's wrestling with both suffering and discouragement here. Will his suffering accomplish all that it was meant to do, or will it be in vain? Will he be able to provide the rescue for Israel that it so desperately needed? And so, 
as, as a, um, even if it's just a side note, if Jesus had to bring laments to God, feelings, frustrations, emotions to God, how much more do we need to do that? To, to lament is to, it's an emotional, passionate, frustrated complaint. We can bring that to God. We should bring that to God. Jesus did. So how much more do we need to practice lament when we face similar struggles of suffering, of discouragement, pain? But we see after, after he brings this complaint, after he brings this lament, he recalls where his security comes from. And it kind of goes on and on. Did you notice? He just kind of says, he's, he's about to say, thus saith the Lord in verse 5. But then he kind of says, okay, he's he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Okay, now that I've remembered all of that, God says this. He has to then reflect on who God is. In verse 4, that we see that his right is with the Lord. That's the same word, mishpat, that means justice. And then his recompense, or his reward. So the, the justice that needed happening, and the reward that would come upon him finishing this task, it's all in God's hands. Jesus had to remember that. Isn't that amazing? And he remembers in verse 5 that, it was the Father who had chosen him for this task. It was the Father who formed him in Mary's womb to do this thing. And so it's, it's remembering this identity and his chosenness by God that brings him back to a place of confidence as honored by God and strengthened by God. And then it's in that place of trust and confidence that God speaks to him afresh in verse 6. And so here in verse 6, we see, who does God have a heart for? Who is God pining after? Who does he want to know him, to experience his goodness? Who? The audience of Isaiah they like the part about bringing back the tribes of Jacob. They like the restoration of Israel as a kingdom. Because Isaiah is preaching in a time of, of upheaval, of threat, and of future exile. And so what the Jewish people wanted to hear is, this Redeemer is going to redeem you back to your prime. Back to King David, back to King Solomon. It's all going to be good for you. Israel. That's what they wanted to hear. And that's what they do hear. But what else do they hear? They hear that this servant is going to be what? A light for the nations. Every person outside of the boundaries of Israel, God has a heart for. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so to answer that question, who does God have a heart for? Well, you know, it is pretty clear that God has a heart for the people of Israel. 
He definitely does. You know, his primary plan, it's laid out right here, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. And even in the New Testament, we see this continue. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, when he's about to declare the the glories of the gospel and the details of it, he says, this is the good news of the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So whose throne will Jesus sit on? We find out in the book of Isaiah. You got, you've all heard it at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9. What does it say? It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then it says this, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God isn't done with this people yet. Jesus is going to sit on David's throne. But who else does God have a heart for? When Jesus is king, who will he pay attention to? This is where God blows every supposedly inclusive community out of the water. He wants this community to be composed of people from every nation on earth. He has a heart for the world. We're in John 3.16 territory here. For God so loved the world. The kingdom of Jesus knows no national or ethnic boundaries. It knows only one boundary of any kind. And what is it? Those who have submitted to Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's it. That is the one boundary. And then it's open to all. And you can't get any more extreme. You cannot get any more inclusive. You cannot get any more broad than this. The ends of the earth, that is God's heart. He has a heart for this gospel to go to the furthest reaches of the earth into every human community on the planet. This church, Calvary the Hill, it's part of, it's called Calvary Global Network. It's a network of churches across the world. It's got over 1,500 churches across the world. You know, from its beginning, there's a heritage of, of global church planting. Go! And we ourselves are a church plant. We're from another Calvary, Calvary Fellowship, which is in uh, Mount Lake Terrace. But guess what? God still has some pretty sweet good news he wants to share with more people. And we are called to share that here in Seattle. But some of us may be called to go share it elsewhere. The key is to be faithful with wherever God has called you, be it to stay or to go.
And notice what God calls this servant to be. He's making Jesus as a light to the nations. A light. Light illustrates the benefit that comes with accepting the lordship of Jesus. It's pretty simple. The ability to see. The recognition that you are in darkness and you need help. That you need rescue. In fact, the only prerequisite to entering this wonderfully inclusive community of Jesus is need. Need. You need to be needy. If you think you know how to run your life, you know, if being the master of your own destiny is working for you, if you aren't needy for rescue from yourself, then you won't be able to come to Jesus. But once you can admit you need help, it's available to you right then and there. Now, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. The interesting thing is everyone he was talking to was sick. Everyone he was talking to was a sinner. But there were those who didn't think they were a sinner and didn't think they were sick. You got to know you're sick. You got to know you're in need. So how does this exclusive yet inclusive kingdom work? You know, what does it look like in practice? We see this in verses 7 through 13. Sort of a portrait of Jesus' kingdom. Starting in verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Here in these verses, we see the blueprint of the kingdom of Jesus, the trappings. What will it look like? How will it feel? Will I know it when I see it? And first, we see another hint of this upside-down nature we talked about last week. The upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. Right there it says, 
God is talking to Jesus, and he, what is, how does he address him? One deeply despised to one abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. That's how he addresses Jesus here. He is deeply despised and abhorred. Great. <laughs> Did Jesus arrive in pomp and circumstance? No, he didn't. This is how he arrived. In suffering, in humility, a posture of meekness. And it's this that will bewilder people. It says, kings shall look at this and will arise, meaning in respect. Princes shall look at this and shall prostrate themselves. This upside-down use of power will cause the respect and worship of kings and princes. And it will bring glory to God. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus is the way, and he provides the way. This is his way. And what does it look like? Well, first we see it all revolves around the person of Jesus. Accepting the exclusive role of Jesus as Lord of the universe. And it says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Not a system, not a method, just him. Just him. Because of that, he's both our way in through what he did, as well as our model for ministry. And then what do we see? We see the first way that he accomplishes this is in humility and suffering. So as his followers, which is what we are, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, you follow a person, As his followers, we are citizens of this future kingdom, and we go the same route he went. We go the way of humility and suffering. And in doing so, we will confuse people. We want to confuse people. Not in a bad way, in a bewildering way. Wow, why did they respond that way? Why didn't they fight fire with fire? You know, why... Are they willing to dialogue versus cut me off? Why are they praying for me instead of talking about me behind my back? That's different. That's weird. That's Jesus. There are so many ways God wants to help us go this way to bring him glory. And that takes asking him, That takes dependence on him, which is what we see next in verse 8. We we saw it last week. We'll see it again next week. We see Jesus as the original disciple. It says, the Father's talking to him, and it says, I have answered you. He's talking to Jesus. I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Jesus is walking with his Father. And so here he is, dependent on God, answered by God, helped by God, kept by God, sent by God. What we're being discipled to be 
is dependent, not self-sufficient. He wants to help us know more clearly our need for him, not less. And next we see the miraculous happening. It says, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those in darkness, appear. Now, remember, Isaiah was written during a time of intense upheaval, uncertainty, prediction of exile. Those reading this wouldn't read it spiritually, but literally. If we're going into exile, I want to be freed from exile. (laughs) And it's a good reminder that even the hope that sustains us, those who have more of a spiritual understanding of heaven than a physical one. This is a physical hope that we have. Not just our new, newly made physical bodies, but a physical kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. We're not just going to be floaty and ethereal spirits. We're going to have a body. We're going to be in an actual physical kingdom that is ruled by Jesus. But notice this transformation. Those who are in darkness and feel invisible are told to what? Appear. Isn't that beautiful? Sometimes we we don't feel seen. We don't feel known. We feel invisible. In Christ, God sees you, knows you, looks at you, and he says, appear. You are a person that I love. I am making you into someone. But there's so much else happening here. We see see provision. We see protection. We see guidance. We see restoration. We see a grand host of people coming from north, West and south. It's another way of saying north, south, east, and west. (laughs) And lastly, we see the worship of the kind of a God who would do such a thing. It says, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. That's the response. That's the natural response to what God is doing, has done, will do. Wow. And so all of these things should characterize, even now, the citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. Do we see lives being transformed? Yes. But I think God wants us to see more. Do we see provision and protection? Yes. But I think God wants us to see more. Do we see direction and guidance? Yes, but God wants us to see more. Do we see the gospel going out and worship as a response? Yes, but aren't you longing for more? God has so many more people to share this kingdom with. And that's the heart of God. The heart of God is for all people, period. He loves every person on earth. Every person is invited in. 
And contrary to the beliefs of those in Fremont, Seattle is not the center of the world. And there's a sign, I think, right, by the Lenin statue. <laughs> we are at the ends of the earth. The gospel has reached us. And for a minute, we can just be thankful that God has caused this message to go forth even to us. The fact that God has waited this long to wrap up his redemptive plan for the world, it means it included us. He's patient. He's waiting. He's waiting for the gospel to go to everyone it's supposed to go to. And we can thank and praise God simply for that fact, that, that we got a chance to be citizens of this kingdom. And citizenship, that's, that's a helpful language for this. How, it's difficult to navigate these tricky waters of being a citizen both of heaven and of America or wherever you're a citizen of. It's, it's tricky to balance that dual citizenship. It's hard. But the language of citizenship doesn't communicate completely the heart of God. God doesn't just want us as citizens, you know, in, engaging in our spiritual civic duty. No, no, no. He invites us to become his children. Sons, daughters, whom he calls co-heirs with Christ. You know, in the ancient world, usually it's the older son that gets the inheritance. God says, yeah, yeah, my son gets the inheritance, but y'all are co-heirs with him. Whoa. This is how much God loves us. And so God has, he has such a heart, such a heart for Capitol Hill, he has such a heart for Seattle. He has a heart for every person you bump into, whether it's regularly or, or irregularly. Every single person in your life, God has a heart for. And he has such a heart that he's called us here. And he's in, like, like Paul said, he was given the grace to preach to the nations. This this responsibility that the citizens of this kingdom have to, to propagate or, or evangelize or be ambassadors of this kingdom, this isn't just an obligation. It's a gift. It's a gift. And so if, if you think of it as something like, I'm not even sure myself, why would I want to tell others, that's an okay place to be. Go to God with that. Say, God, why don't you, why don't I want this for my friends? Why don't I want this for my family? And he'll help you rediscover the, the beauty of it for yourself. Because you can't, there's no way you're going to evangelize something unless you've experienced it and love it for yourself. Why, why would you do that? That'd be lame. No. But once you experience it, once you taste it, in the very least, you'll be praying for those who haven't. And then once you start praying for them, 
God might just open up an opportunity to talk to them about how much you've experienced God's love, his acceptance, his forgiveness, his cleansing. And so, us collectively, we are called to be an embassy of the future, ambassadors of a future kingdom that has not yet been fully implemented to display God's heart to the world, to live amongst one another in peace, forgiveness, and hope. Because if you haven't noticed, when you put people together from all walks of life, from all nations, from all ideologies, from all backgrounds, things can get a little messy. But that's why we have the gospel. Because the gospel provides us with the resources we need to live amongst one another in joy and peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, repentance. And it's that that will be one of the things that will be confusing, bewildering to people. Wow, America can't legislate that. But something else is going on here. Something that's binding people together. And so may we confuse people with how we portray God's love to them. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the hope that comes from meditating on our hope <laughs> in you, Jesus. And that we don't just have a, a future hope that's far off, but we have one that we can greet from afar like it says in Hebrews. We can have a taste of it from afar. When we live for you, when we live with and among one another in joy and peace and worship and and like family, we get to taste this reconciliation that you purchased through your body. In Ephesians, when it says you killed the hostility, nailing it to the cross, There's no reason we should be hostile to one another anymore because of what you've purchased. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that you purchased. We thank you for the kingdom that you're building. We thank you that just like Jesus, we can come to you with our our baggage, with our questions, with our frustrations. Even Jesus said, I have labored in vain. How much more can we approach you with those, with those difficulties, with those complaints, and bang on your chest and say, God, I don't get this. I don't get why I'm going through this. I don't get why he left. I don't get why she betrayed me. I don't get why I lost my job. I don't get why life is so hard. You accept us in that place. Thank you. Lord, we, wanna, we don't want to stay in that place, but we thank you that we can approach you in that place and that you gently invite us from that place to experience who you truly are, which is our good dad. Even those of us who didn't have a good dad can experience a good dad. So it's because of that we, that we want to give you our lives, that we want to receive all that you have for us, that we want to walk by the Spirit, that you graciously pour out for each one of us because of Christ. 
And it's all because of him that we worship and praise you today and the rest of our week and the rest of our lives. In his name we pray, amen. So we're going to spend the rest of our time just praising God because how could you not, based on this heart that he has for people? And then Jeff and Cindy, I think, will be up front, available for prayer. For those of you who would like to receive prayer, come forward. Someone who loves you can pray for you, can lay their hands on you, can, can speak words of comfort and encouragement to you. If you want to give of, of your author, offerings or tithes, you can do that here with this box. But all of this, all of it, is rooted and grounded in what Jesus has done that we get to meditate on in the weeks to come. But for now, the Lord's Supper communion is set. If you have submitted your life to Jesus, this is an act for you to participate in, to remember, to, to declare to yourself, to preach to yourself, Jesus did this for me. His body was broken for me. His blood was spilled for me. Therefore, I will respond in worship and giving him of my life. And anything he might want, I'll give to him. Nothing's off limits because he gave me everything. So you can come forward and receive it during these songs. But let's spend some time praising this God. Amen.